0: This morning, we have the great privilege of gathering together as believers in Christ. The ability to come together is indeed a tremendous privilege. We have the privilege of gathering willingly. We're not here out of coercion. Nobody is forcing us to come except maybe our kids. But we hopefully come because we desire to know the Lord. We also have the privilege of coming openly, We don't have to hide that, indeed, this is where we're going on Sunday mornings. We are coming to be part of the church. And we have the privilege of doing so regularly. We gather each week, definitely on Sundays and sometimes throughout the week. And we never have to doubt or question whether or not we're going to be able to come back next week. Usually, we can be assured that it will happen. So as we continue our study in Colossians this morning... I not only want to place our attention on the local church, but I want us to call, call us to consider, indeed, what it is that the Lord has called us to. What is this privilege that he has given us? And I want us to see how the church points to God's wisdom. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, for the final part in the message that I have called Seven Characteristics of a Ministry of Reconciliation. As always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 1, we've been expounding upon verses 24 through 2-5. Um, Today we continue beginning in verse 2 of chapter 2, but I want to read and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You may be seated. On January 8, 1790, President George Washington stood before a joint Congress, and at that time, while welcoming North Carolina into statehood as the most recent state to be admitted, he went on to analyze the current status of the United States of America at that time, while at the same time offering a plan for sustainment and continued growth. That speech was really less important in terms of content, and more important, for its precedent, though its form has changed slightly through the years, it was with this speech that Washington would establish a standard for what we now call the State of the Union Address. This week, 232 years later after Washington first did this, our current President Joe Biden stood before Congress and continued that tradition, addressing not only Congress, but the people of the United States. Now is not the time for me to recount for you what was said in this year's address. And to be honest, I couldn't tell you because I don't watch it. My assessment is that generally, this is now used as a time for leaders to legitimize their own pride. Regardless of who is giving the speech, what party that individual is part of, or what political party even any of us support, The state of union at this point is more about pageantry and optics, with one side trying to pridefully declare all that they've done and all the good that they brought forth, while the other side simply always tries to undermine any of that. Arrogance at this level rarely maintains an accurate assessment of the current situation. And even when it does have an accurate assessment, rarely does it convey it accurately to the people while many people are often consumed by political speculation and commentary of this type if anyone's ever paused long enough to consider something more deeply not what is the state of the union but what is the state of the church i would tell you that far more important than the assessment of the state of the union is indeed our appraisal of the church an evaluation of this type, though, can only come from one person, the one who is in charge of the church, the one who is the head of the church, as we read or read previously in our passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. It can only come from Christ, because he alone is the head. He alone has reconciled all things, it says in verse 20. And Paul received his own ministry, not from any other, but from Christ, it says in verse 23. Therefore, only Christ has the ability to assess the church. Only Christ has the attributes to assess the church. And only Christ has the authority to assess the church. While the nation looks to the president for his state of the union, we look to Christ for the state of the church. If Christ were to give an assessment of the church, what would his words reveal? We can be assured that whatever he said, it would be unbiased, unerring, and uncompromising, and contrary to man's assessment of the State of the Union. While man's assessment of the nation may be selfishly exaggerated, I would tell you that Christ's assessment of the church will always be supremely explicit. However, the church does not need to wait for the appearance of Christ to know the appraisal of Christ. By his word, Christ reveals his exact expectations of his followers, both individually and corporately. Each is clearly stated, each is clearly defined, so that it may be clearly understood. None of us needs to speculate, then, about what Christ would say, because a simple reading of scripture is sufficient enough to tell us exactly what he would say. To the Corinthians, Paul describes his ministry as one of reconciliation. And through that, he implores others to be reconciled to God. And now, by his own words here in Colossians, Paul writes a description of his own ministry. And he provides for us seven separate, separate characteristics of a ministry of reconciliation for the Lord. He begins in verse 24. And Paul brings in suffering, but he does so differently, bringing in a different perspective, saying that suffering is an opportunity to rejoice because those who are suffering are simply filling up or continuing the work of Christ. In verses 25 through 27, he brings us to the second characteristic, stewardship, Believers engaged in ministry are called upon to steward the mysteries of God, the text says, making known only what God has revealed, which is the message of salvation. A ministry of reconciliation, then, brings a message of reconciliation. Third, a ministry of reconciliation is defined by shepherding, following the example of Christ who presents believers as holy and blameless, as we read in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Now Paul, in his ministry of reconciliation, does the same, presenting believers as perfect and mature, as it says in verse 28. And finally, a ministry of reconciliation is notable for its characteristic of striving, of labor. It cannot be a passive endeavor, But it requires both willful submission and willful sacrifice. Laboring to the point of exhaustion is what Paul says in his text. But always doing so by the Lord's strength. And now we hit the last three. And I want you to note fifth, the singularity of verses two and three. They state there, I want their hearts to be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verses 2 and 3 combine together to give us an extraordinary text. Because in those verses, Paul unites behavior and belief, urging them to do the word, in order that they may discern the word, <clears throat> a ministry of reconciliation is defined by singularity, united in love, so that they may be united in doctrine. Showing his affection for the Colossians, Paul expresses his desire for them, that indeed they would be united in love. He will use the same phrase, knit together, that he uses here. He'll use it in verse 19 to describe how one part of the body is joined to the other part of the body, knitted together in its joints and ligaments. The point being is that things are so connected together, these pieces come together, that if one part fails, the rest of it fails as well. In the same way, the desire expressed by verse 2 is that each member is knit together, incapable of existing without one another. But instead of being joined together as joints and ligaments, here it says they are joined together by love. Love is a life source for the body of Christ. It is his how his body functions together for his purposes. John 17 is remembered as the passage in which Jesus prays. We come to the middle of that chapter and We come to the words of Christ when he utters these words beginning in verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Not only do we note the connection of unity there, this time unity between the Father and the Son, but Francis Schaeffer notes that in John chapter 13, he says the point was that if an individual Christian does not show love toward other true Christians, the world has the right to judge. He is not a Christian. But then he goes on further and expounds on these words of verse 21, and he says this, but in John 17:21, Jesus is stating something else, which is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christianity. The unity of those in the church portray the unity of the Father and of the Son. So the church body united in love is the church that testifies to the love of God so that others may believe as well. I want you to notice something incredibly important in our text, though, in Colossians. Paul doesn't begin by expressing his desire that they be united in love. He begins first by saying his desire is that their hearts may be encouraged. With this phrase, the words heart and encourage come together to form a statement that is very explicit. While most Bible readers will interpret this verse as an expression of emotion, Paul's intentions are more than happiness and comfort. First, pay attention to that word encourage. It means to call alongside, as in calling alongside someone to come alongside someone who's in need. And then look at the word heart. Despite how the word heart is used today in the culture of Paul, the heart was the center of a person's being. The heart was not merely a source of emotion, but instead it was the origin of both intellect and will. Therefore, the heart was considered to be the place or the muscle used for both thinking and decision-making, not the brain, as we now know today. So when we read this verse, it says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and want them knit together in love. We can read it as Paul saying, I want them to prove their love for one another by coming alongside and thinking together, reasoning together so that they can make decisions together. And for what purpose? What does unity accomplish here? Paul says, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's calling on the Colossians to love one another in order to know the wisdom and knowledge of God, which is all contained in Christ. i want you to think about how profound that statement is because it's the opposite of every other thing we see in scripture always we are told to love christ so that we can love others often we'll say if you know the right doctrine then you know the right way to love one another that's not untrue And it can't be untrue because it's in scripture. Think of the order of the greatest commandments. First, love God with all your heart and soul and mind. The next one follows is then love one another. Indeed, if a person does not love Christ, they cannot love one another. So why would Paul say this here? What is he hoping to achieve with this goal? And it's this. False teaching will always divide. And that's what's going on in the church in Colossae. The wolves are here, and they're deceiving Mm -hmm. the people. And the people are beginning to divide because they're not sure who to believe or what to believe. And uncertain of what is true, not knowing who they can trust, there are these seeds of doubt that are beginning to take root. And ultimately, if they're not dealt with, they will force Mm -hmm. the destruction of the church. Paul's desire is not that they be divided, but that they be united, that their love for one another brings them together to seek the truth together. The author of Hebrews calls upon believers, do not neglect to meet together, as in the habit of some, as is the habit of some, but encouraging or coming alongside one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Believers use these words to incite other believers to be part of the church gathering, routinely coming together. It is the very premise of chapter 3 in the book, Rediscovering Church, that we're reading together. But we often fail to look at the verses that precede that in Hebrews 10. And for that, they determine for us the reason for gathering Beginning in verse 21, the author states, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near and with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Same thing Paul says here. Then in verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And before finally saying in verse 24, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then verse 25 comes and says, do not neglect meeting together. Notice all the things that happen here when the body of Christ gathers. How can it be that so much occurs by people simply coming together? First, because the church gathers underneath the preaching of God's word. We see that in 2 Timothy 4. It is by the word that people are taught by his word, people are rebuked, and by his word, people are counseled, 2 Timothy 3. And when there are doubts, when there are misunderstandings, the people come together and talk and reason together. We saw this in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. When there were doubts and they didn't know which way to go, they came together and reasoned from the scriptures. In the face of false teaching, then, genuine love will cause genuine believers To come together for a genuine discussion. Because genuine believers have the fruit of the Spirit. This is not a discussion that is characterized by a prideful heart or self assured arrogance. It is a discussion that is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and so on. And by this process, believers need not be deceived by false teachers. But instead, they can find assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. And why would we want that? Because that mystery is Christ. And in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul writes in our scripture reading this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Jesus is the wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption and far greater than the world's wisdom is the wisdom of God. He says that even more throughout all of First Corinthians chapter 1. This is a unique thing about Christian love in this context, the context of our verses in Colossians. We love one another not merely to know one another more. We love one another to know Christ more. This is a product of the gospel. We love others and desire their spiritual growth as much as our own. Milton Vincent writes it this way. The more I experience the gospel, the more there develops within me a yearning affection for my fellow Christians who are also participating in the glories of the gospel. This affection for them comes loaded with confidence in their continued spiritual growth and ultimate glorification. And it becomes my pleasure to express to them this loving confidence regarding the ongoing work of God in their lives. This indeed points to the great wisdom of God in the design of the church. To the world, the institution of the church is foolishness. It would tell you that people should surround themselves with people that are exactly like them. And indeed, that's our natural tendency We search for those that are more like us. We can relate to them better. But the church isn't made up that way. The church is made up of people of differences, with varying backgrounds, varying thought processes, varying personalities, and so on. (coughs) This makes living in the body of Christ very hard. It's easy to love someone or get along with someone if they're just like us. But trying to love someone who is different and conflicts with our own expectations is hard. But this is a process that God uses for iron sharpening iron. He has gifted people differently so that we can learn from one another and teach one another. This week in your reading of Rediscovered Church, you'll be reading chapter seven. And in that reading, you'll come to this quote the body is a fellowship of difference. We are not alike and we need each other. We have not been gifted the same way and that's how God intended it for our good. We confess the same belief in Jesus Christ, but we enjoy a diversity of experiences. This is God's vision for the church. We grow together not because we're the same, but because we are different. I want you to note sixth, related to singularity, soundness of verse four. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The immature church will create immature disciples. The church is tasked with presenting people, or believers at least, mature in Christ, Verse 28, the church as a body must be mature, firmly rooted, and sanctified by the truth so that it will not be deceived by false teachers. This verse then serves as a warning to believers. In light of the concern about the church being overtaken, the church in Colossae here being overtaken by the false teachers who are infiltrating the church there, the apostle Paul indicates that he has begun this letter with the importance the intention of keeping them grounded, keeping them unpersuaded by those false teachers. He does this first by laying out theology. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, he exalts Christ and places their eyes on him alone so that so focused on Christ, there will not even be a glance at the false teaching over here. But then he continues on, and he writes out these practical implications of their theology. We just saw that in verses 1 and 2 and 3, when we looked at the singularity of those verses. There, he tells them to be united in love. That is a practical implication of Christ being the head of the church. He indicates that this unification and this association with one another acts as a hedge of protection for them, protecting them from the false teaching. But then the thought extends further. Um, To be concerned that they may be misled implies that there is an opportunity for others to mislead them. The words here anticipate what Paul will say in verse 8 when he writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Verse 8 captures very well the meanings of Paul's words in verse 4. He tells them to not be deceived or not be deluded, as some versions read. Notice the weightiness of that word. It means to be deceived by false reasoning or erroneous interpretations. It's like a card player who has won his share unfairly by intentionally deceiving the other players in the game. This is almost a willful or intentional participation in the de- in the deception, not allowing oneself to be confronted with the truth. The word for deceived here or deluded is used only one other place in scripture, in James chapter 1, verse 22. In a passage or in a verse that I suspect you know well, he says, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. When it comes to sin, indeed, we are experts in deceiving ourselves. While we may criticize the sin of others with ourselves, we are quick to rationalize it or justify it or minimize it. Thus deceiving ourselves into thinking that it's not really sin at all. The result is that there's no conviction of sin, and that conveys the depths of our depravity. But here in our text, Paul's concern is not that they will deceive themselves. Paul's concern is that they will be deceived by others, or that they'll allow themselves to be deceived by others. Paul's concern is justified with the words by the words with plausible arguments. It'd be one thing if the deception was easy to spot, but the indication here is that it is veiled, it's hidden behind a partial truth so that it is unrecognizable as falsehood without thinking. Centuries ago, in the time of Paul, it was not uncommon for an educated person to be trained in the art of persuasive speech. This individual would be taught not how to use reasoning to present an argument, but how to use influential speech and impressive words. Historical writings reveal that the sages, the men who were considered wise at that time, spent much of their time frequently criticizing these professional speakers for their unethical use of persuasive speech. allow me to digress for a moment I, i want to point out something crucial in this verse the words of paul in this verse are very simplistic so simplistic that we tend to overlook them but think about our culture many will say the bible is out of date it's an ancient book and it is irrelevant to the world today and if it's going to be pertinent at all to today's culture then it must be adjusted But the word of God is sufficient in that it sufficiently addresses any circumstance in a person's life. And it does so just as much today as it did then. And we see that here. Paul's words call attention to the method that the false teachers use. The method that they're going to use in order to deceive other people. In his day, they were doing so not based on rational, logical arguments. They were doing so on the art of persuasive speech. I don't think I need to make the connection for you today on how that connects to our culture now. I began this morning by bringing your attention to the State of the Union Address. And what is that, at least in my eyes? It's a time of using crafty speech or clever speech to influence people. Granted, again, I didn't listen to this one. I just know how people are. There is nothing new under the sun. As an adult, I've spent more time trying to unlearn the things I learned as a child than I do trying to learn new things as an adult. And that might be a slight exaggeration not by much. As an unbeliever, I spent most of my formative years in secular culture, a culture that didn't tell me how to think, it told me what to think. As a 12th grader, I remember sitting in my contemporary world problems class, and we were discussing the issues of that day. 22 years ago, we were talking about the threat of Russia. And the teacher explained that communism, and she actually taught this, is a great thing. It is something that the world needed to consider more seriously. I was not very discerning back then, but I remember sitting in this class thinking, this isn't instruction, this is indoctrination. This particular teacher was originally from the USSR. And she would teach us that if people would follow communism, The ideology would lead to a better world. But then she said, but people don't follow it, don't submit to it. I don't stand behind the pulpit this morning to debate the merits of communism, socialism, progressivism, or whatever ism that should be a wasm. My goal is to impart biblical truth so that we may have a biblical worldview. And this high school experience is relevant for two reasons. Two years after this class is when I would become a believer and that would transform my world view from the culture to Christ. And in this transition I learned something, indeed that teacher was correct. People would not follow the communist world view that she was propagating, but why wouldn't they follow it? Because people are sinners their wants outweigh the needs of others and so they'll take as much as they can get even if it means someone else has to deal with less and to affirm that point just look at the leadership of that country a biblical worldview informs our analysis of the world around us through the lens of scripture We evaluate not just communism, we evaluate theocracies and oligarchies and monarchies and democracies. We don't use our biblical worldview merely to inform us and help analyze the political situation of the world. What we believe about scripture informs everything we think, say, and do. What we believe about scripture determines what we believe about the world. What we believe about Christ determines what we believe about the culture. The world is discipling our people, and sometimes the world is discipling us. But these days are evil, Paul writes in Ephesians. And so these days will promote that evil. Evil seeks to destroy and deceive, deceiving people about God in order to destroy their relationship with God. This is a call then to listen to the truth in our text. Believers are to be so grounded in truth that they are not persuaded by the eloquence of an argument, but by the effectiveness of analysis. So grounded in truth, they're not to be persuaded by the style of speech, but by the substance substance of the statement. If we aren't discipling believers, the world will disciple them for us. I want you to note finally in verse 5 paul's spirit he says for though i am absent in body yet i am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good in order and see your good order and the firmness of your faith in christ a ministry of reconciliation is defined by spirit little less not as in holy spirit but as paul says his spirit Paul uses two military terms in this text when he says that he rejoices to see their good order and their firmness. A disorderly person will create chaos. In this case, those disorderly people are those false teachers creating chaos at the church in Colossae. But Paul rejoices that in contrast to that disorder, the believers at the church in Colossae can present in an orderly fashion. Like a line of soldiers who stand ready at their position is what these words mean. They form an orderly line of defense. And then they stand there in firmness as a cohesive, unified unit. As it stands, though, Paul cannot rejoice with them physically. Instead, he says, I am with you in spirit and rejoicing. To say that someone's spirit was with them was an expression of intimacy and of affection. As a means of encouragement today, we will often say, my thoughts and prayers are with you. That's not untrue. Paul's statement here has much deeper implications. Paul is living his life as though they are still together. Their form of communication is different because he can't do it face to face. He's sending them a letter. The distance between them, though, does not impact his love for them. It doesn't impact his instruction to them. And it does not impact his labor for them. He uses the same phrase in 1 Corinthians 5.3. In that case, instead of exhortation, though, he's giving them discipline. They're invoking church discipline. He says this, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. Paul's not with them, and yet, even from afar, he's still exercising church discipline and instruction to them. The form of the relationship may be different, but the function is the same. Paul continues to work for them, and in his labors, he's doing so for the Lord. Think about why Paul can't see them at this moment. What prevents Paul from seeing the Colossians? He's in prison. And yet, despite his circumstances, he still has a genuine interest in them. He still has a desire to be with them. And he is still ministering to them. And so his spirit is with them, is what he says. Colossians 1, through 2, 5 is an expression of Paul's ministry to the Colossians. And from it, we find seven characteristics. Of a ministry of reconciliation. First, ministry is characterized by a willingness to suffer. Second, it is undertaken in a manner of stewardship. In this case, it's stewardship of the message or the mysteries of God that they've been given. It is undertaken with the task of shepherding, it says, teaching and admonishing disciples so that they may be presented mature in Christ. But ministry requires striving, intense labor on behalf of the people, but in the strength of the Lord. Ministry is defined by singularity, in which believers are united in love for the purposes of knowing Christ. And all of this is so that they may be characterized by soundness, a firmness in doctrine. And finally, it is characterized by a human spirit. The desire to be together and rejoice at the firmness that results from being unified. When I look at this list, I see three outcomes of a ministry of reconciliation. First, I see a ministry of reconciliation designates a community of believers. The text calls the believers to function together, not independently. And so they become a community Second, a ministry of reconciliation disciples believers to maturity. Ministry is not about getting people saved, but seeing them sanctified. It is committed to their ongoing continual growth. And finally, a ministry of reconciliation defends against false teaching. We create mature disciples so that they may be guarded against the persuasive speech of falsehood that will seek to lead them astray. These seven characteristics, I would say, are definitive of any God-given ministry. As the invasion of Ukraine continues this morning, and we pray for the people there, I want you to think a little more deeply about the events taking place there, because they point us to some extreme examples of the Christian faith. While the media touts Russia's targeting of the ta- and takeover of nuclear plants, what you likely haven't heard is their targeting and takeover of the church. Most of those countries in those areas have a state-sponsored church. In Russia, it is the Russian Orthodox Church. In Romania, it is the Romanian Orthodox Church. In Ukraine, it is the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and so on. Why would the invasion seek to take down the church? Because the church in those countries is not about presenting Christ Christ but about being a political weapon. It is the church that controls the political system. Several times in my life, in countries like Mexico and Venezuela, I have been threatened with jail. Never have the police threatened to throw me in jail. It has always come from the religious leaders. In those cases, it was the Catholic Church because that's who controlled those countries. One man tells the story of being a missionary in Ukraine. And many years ago, he was underneath the board of the Southern Baptists, their international missionary board, and he and his wife served. And at one point, they are walking on the street in the evening, just enjoying themselves when a car comes careening around the corner, gets very close, almost hits them. And it, finally, it stops. When the driver stopped, he would say in a Russian accent, wouldn't it be a shame if the Baptist minister and his wife were tragic victims of a car accident in a foreign land? And yes, that was meant to be a threat. The man driving the car and uttering that was the local priest. That is the state of the church in many of those countries. They're formed for Christ's suppression not Christ exaltation. This week, though, I was on a conference call, and as we were discussing the events in Ukraine, someone said this. In Europe, generally there is not an infrastructure of gospel-oriented, healthy churches able to support spiritual hunger. He's not wrong in that statement. Meaning that where churches exist because they are so focused on self-interest and politics, they're not in a position to respond to genuine spiritual hunger. An example that I've given to some people this week is September 11th, 2001. I wasn't a believer at the time. I didn't go to church. But my understanding is that time brought a lot of people back into the church or people into the church that had never been before. They were seeking answers. They didn't know what to do. And so they came to the church. But the US had healthy gospel oriented churches that could give people the answers they sought. Obviously, not every church is solid, but at least spread across the United States, we have people who can meet those spiritual hunger. That's not the case in Europe, it is spiritually dark. There is one exception. Ukraine. Despite the main church that I just talked about being politically motivated, there is a large network of believers in Ukraine. They're equipped not only to use the current circumstances to point people to God, but if they get dispersed, they're equipped to tell people there about God, wherever they end up. They embody the marks of a healthy ministry of reconciliation, outlined by Paul in our text. They're ready to support spiritual hunger caused by the devastation that's going on in their own country right now. Looking upon them as an example and reviewing our text, let me ask you this. Are we a church that is prepared to suffer with fellow believers and rejoice in that suffering? Are we stewarding the mysteries of God entrusted in our care? Are we shepherding people towards maturity through admonition and teaching, not just imparting knowledge about God's mystery of the gospel, but application of that mystery? Are we striving in our labors, exerting every ounce of energy for his labors? Is our body of Christ one of singularity, knitted together in love so that we are unwavering against false teaching? Are we sound in our convictions? And are we characterized by our spirit? When we leave here, do we desire to be together? Let us look to the example of the church and evaluate that, not just for us, but for the the global church. What is the state of the church? Let's pray. Father God, there are so many things taking place across this world, Lord. And yet we know you are a sovereign Lord in control of it all. We know that not only do you have a plan, but that plan is meant to glorify you, Lord. Father, you are a wise and knowledgeable God, knowing all things, and Lord, so we know that this is indeed perfect